This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Today I'll tell a story about two monks named Seppo Nganto, who went on a pilgrimage together. And at the time of their journey, they were both pretty seasoned monks. It's said that Seppo was already in his 40s, Nganto in his 30s. They had both been students of illustrious teachers, Tozan, Tokusan, but were diligent in their practice and traveled to visit other famous teachers when they had a chance like this. On this occasion, it said, in the middle of their journey through the mountains, they got stuck a big snowstorm. But luckily there was an inn nearby. And they were able to take shelter from the storm and stay there together and wait it out. When they got settled, Ganto immediately lay down by the fire and went to sleep. Seppo sat up all night in Zazen. But before I get to the punchline of the story and what happened after that, I'd like to say a couple things make this story a little different. Uh, the first the first really is that there's no teacher in the story, which is very unusual for the koans. Usually it's the interaction between a teacher and a student. But here, even though one of the students is a little older than the other and one is a little more seasoned than the other, basically they're friends together, the peers. And I think that that's an aspect of our practice that sometimes gets neglected when we focus exclusively on the student-teacher relationship. And while that's, you know, always central, what goes on between you can be just as important as what goes on between you and me. This is the whole whole dimension of sangha, that we have to 
really make an effort, I think, to understand and appreciate. I think that even though in my own experience, when I was coming up through the ranks, it was always very important for me to have one sort of Zen buddy, you know, somebody I hung around with and could talk to and be honest with about what I thought was going on and what I thought the teacher was up to and all that. But still, I think my own personal style is to be very one-on-one with people, and I don't think I naturally think in terms of group dynamics. You could probably trace it back to my being an only child. But in the last uh, few years, and I guess increasingly uh, since the pandemic, I think our Sangha has developed in uh, many interesting ways that have helped promote peer-to-peer interaction. Chris and Parnell and Fran, who isn't here, have all been running discussion groups. And I think it's added a whole different dimension to what goes on to when we have a discussion group that I lead and that everybody sort of directs their attention or questions to me. I think it's a whole different process happens when people can learn to be open and honest with one another about what what do they really think. Joko uh, <clears throat> used to say that uh, one of the ways she judged the maturity of her students was how they handled themselves in the Sangha. Did they put the chair back in place uh, out on the patio? They put their cup away, you know, in the cupboard after they used it. They leave it out for some, thinking somebody else was going to take care of it. And a big part of that is how do people treat each other? Are they all jockeying for position, trying to be the teacher's favorite? Or are they actually helping each other, treating each other as friends and peers? feeling like we're all going to move forward together. Part of that also is contained in this idea of pilgrimage. Doesn't quite count as a pilgrimage to a on Amtrak and come down to Philadelphia from New York. But in a way, it's uh, 
part of the same idea that we want to intermingle, see what the other branch of the family is doing. How are they talking about things? How do they do it? You know, and I'm not coming down here to check up and see if Pat and Peter are doing it right. It's much more a matter of trying to just see that there are slightly different ways to talk about things and run things, and how the atmosphere of one sangha can be a little different than the other. And we learn from each other that way. I remember a friend telling me he, he had a, was in a center that had a Japanese teacher that would go back to Japan for half the year. And he said that half the year when the teacher was gone, they were afraid to so much as switch the toilet paper from rolling front to back to back to front, you know, without getting permission from Japan. Right? You know, that's when you get in the grip of an idea of this is the authentic way to do it, and, you know, can't dare deviate from it. There's a saying that if you simply hold on to one way of practicing, you're like a vine entangled around an old tree trunk. But you may be attached to, may be all strong and powerful, but you're stuck in that one place forever. We don't want to get stuck thinking ours is the one authentic way to practice. We don't want to think that, oh, my teacher has, has the answer and nobody else does. None of them are as good as my teacher. Okay. And all, invariably, very insular for the student and ultimately very dangerous for the teacher. very easy for teachers to become, you know, the little gods of their own little, you know, mountaintop, right? And not think that they ever have to answer to anybody else or learn from anybody else. That doesn't do anybody any good. <laughs> so one kind of pilgrimage is for me to come down here once in a while, visit you all. Another will be for you, I hope, to come up to Garrison when we run a session in August. Another kind will be when Pat and Peter and I go down to the Lays and Teachers Association meeting in uh, Florida uh, next month, try to meet other teachers, get a sense of what they're doing. All these are pilgrimages in order to try to keep ourselves uh, connected rather than isolated, not to feel like uh, we're it, right?
So we have this story of two friends on pilgrimage together, supporting each other as they go. And again, I, I think about Joko more than anything, not wanting her students to simply always be dependent on her and directing all their attention to her. You know, she had that image of the baby birds, all of their mouths all open up, ah, you know, waiting for the mother bird to drop a worm in. You know, that's not how she wanted teaching to be. That's why we have that line in our chant where it says, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. I think she really emphasized, she wanted people to learn to be the student of life, not just of her. And that's part of what I think we really foster when we've developed Sangha and when we develop peer-to-peer -peer relationships. Uh, it's all part of learning from each other and learning from life. Not just going to be the morsel of teaching that the teacher drops down your, your gullet, right? Now to get back to Seppo and Ganto, Ganto uh, had a good night's sleep in front of the fire. When he wakes up, he sees Seppo sitting there very diligently practicing Zazen all night. And so Ganto, and Ganto remembers the younger one, he's the, he's the guy in his 30s. He says, what? What's the matter with you? Can't you even take a little time off? We're in the middle of a snowstorm, it's cold. We're lucky enough to have a place to sleep and a fire. Can't you relax a little bit? And Seppo says, I haven't uh, had your good fortune. I've, uh, I haven't gotten from uh, my practice of a peace of mind that you've obviously gotten from yours. I can't waste any time. I have to practice all night. And so Ganto says to him, we've both been studying all these years under you know, his different teachers. Tell me about your experiences. And Seppo says, well, from Tozan, I, I got this. And from Tokazan, I, I got that insight. And Kanto interrupts him and says, haven't you learned that the family treasure isn't something you get from somebody else? It's what you've had yourself all along? And with that, something shifted for Seppo. Uh, 
I'm playing a little loose with the translation of the story here to make a particular point. Um, when I looked up this story last, it, it said, uh, Ganto said to Seppo, don't you know a family heirloom is not something that comes in through the front gate? Which is a, maybe a little awkward to our ears, and I think needs a little translation, you know. So you either modify the translation or you put the point in a footnote, right? Um, what I think the, the teaching point is, is not just that the family treasure is not something you get secondhand from somebody else, it's, it's, it, the emphasis is on it's something you've already, you already have. A family heirloom, you know, is that uh, old cabinet in the corner that's been in the family for generations, but nobody has realized this Chippendale, right? Seppo is in one sense, being very honest to his, his friend. And I think that's part of this story, you know, that uh, you can really just be honest, you know, whatever, I, I don't seem to have what you have. Uh, I, I, I'm not settled in my own mind. I think I need to get something. And Ganto's point to him is that He's hooked on the idea of getting some new experience, which is going to finally be it. Right? And essentially he's saying to him, well, what about all the experiences just of daily life that you've had till now? Why aren't they it? Why hasn't life been your teacher? Right? For Ganto, sitting zazen, going on pilgrimage, lying down to sleep in front of the fire on a cold night, that's just all life, one moment after a moment, unfolding, right? He's not going on pilgrimage because there's some big secret he hasn't found that he hopes he's going to get from the next uh, teacher. And he isn't sitting zazen just hoping, well, this time maybe I'll get the big satori. It's more like he's a monk. It's what monks do. They sit. They go on pilgrimages, right? <laughs> when they get a chance, they lie down in front of the fire. This is what we really should uh, understand by no gain. Right? No mean, gain doesn't mean he stops practicing. You know, it's not like, well, I've got it now. I don't have to do this anymore. It's the getting it makes just everything about the life that he already has 
sufficient. The life that he already has, right down to being tired, taking a nap, and appreciating the fire. All that is of the expression of, this is it. This is it. Seppo is still hung up on the idea that there's a treasure that he hasn't uh, found yet. He doesn't know how to treasure all the ordinary experiences he's having all the time. What is the family heirloom that he already possesses? You say something like Buddha nature or his true self, you're just, you know, putting it all in fancy wrapping paper and putting ribbons on it. Nindokasan. Come, show me the family heirlooms. Your bad mood, your aching back, your laugh, your tears. It said years later, these monks lived through a period of great turmoil in China, and Ganto uh, was murdered by, uh, they say, bands of brigands, bandits, right? And when they stabbed him to death, said he let out a great scream that you could hear for a mile away. And a thousand years later, Hakuin in Japan When he was a young monk, was tormented by that scream of Ganto's. And he kept asking himself, if Ganto was such an enlightened master, and even he screamed when he was murdered, what hope is there for me? Shouldn't, if he was that enlightened, been able to face death? with equanimity. Took Hakuin a while to realize that when the bandits robbed him, Ganto freely handed over the family treasure. <laughs> 